Good afternoon. Today I'm pleased to welcome uh, Justin Balco from Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Um, so I've known Justin for a long time. We were postdocs together in the same web at Vanderbilt. Um, I left. Justin stayed on to uh, get his own faculty position as an assistant professor, professor in medicine and cancer biology in 2015. And his work has also moved on and diverged from what we did as postdocs. Um, he's moved into the realm of more immunotherapy in combination with uh, so-called targeted therapies, namely kinase targeted therapies, um, and also uh, genome methylation alter alterations. Um, he received his PharmD from SUNY Buffalo in 2004, and then he completed his PhD at the University of Kentucky uh, with work focused on pharmacogenomics and non-small cell lung cancer, and then did his postdoctoral training at Vanderbilt with Carl Sajarga. Um, he's received uh, numerous prestigious awards, including an R00, a Grichalis Award from uh, Susan G. Komen, more recently an Era of Hope Award from the Department of Defense, CDMRP, and he previously received a Breakthrough Award uh, focused on breast cancer research, um, also from the DOD, funding from Genentech, um, and also the Standard Cancer Initiative. So Justin is a highly translational researcher, bridging both the lab and the clinic, and is heavily involved in clinical trials, um, both in the design and the translational endpoints. Um, he has a long, very long list of publications that I won't go through. Most recently, his work um, appeared in Nature Communications a few months back, um, which I think he's going to talk to us about today, um, as well as some uh, fresh stuff that's not yet published. I don't want to take up his time because he has a ton of to do. Justin? Oh. Sorry. Justin does not have any financial interest with respect to this activity, although he apprises me that he does have financial interest elsewhere. Um, he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigation of use of a product or device, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Thanks. Thank you. Can you guys all hear me? Is this mic'd up enough? Awesome. Um, so I learned last night that my uh, entire career, at least in Todd's eyes, was due to him because he was the one that convinced Carlos to hire me uh, for my postdoctoral fellowship. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's apparently a lot to live up, and I, I didn't realize that I went so long not, not knowing that. But uh, no, just kidding. Uh, Todd is a good friend. He was a really good mentor uh, to me in my, uh, the early stages of my postdoctoral fellowship. Um, and uh, as he left, we've still continued to bounce a lot of ideas off uh, one another. Um, and I still consider him a very close friend and colleague. Um, and I was very excited to get the opportunity to come up to Dartmouth to present some of our work. So in Carlos's lab, um, mainly you know, studying molecular interactions and therapeutic sensitivity and resistance, um, rarely did we do any experiments in an immunocompetent mouse unless they were a genetically engineered mouse model of breast cancer. Um, and even then, it was mostly only because reviewers told us to, um, you know, because they wanted a spontaneous tumor model rather than uh, an orthotopic uh, human tumor cell line xenograft, or PDX model. Um, and so as I stayed at Vanderbilt, you know, as many of us uh, sort of um, uh, often will stay at the same institutions as our previous mentor, the challenge also always becomes is how do you differentiate yourself? And there's also sort of this area of excitement or this, this uh, um, feeling of excitement of kind of learning a new field and trying to adapt something that you've learned in your past towards a new area. And so it was right around that time uh, that I was visiting ASCO, I think it was in 2013, um, and was seeing the sort of uprising of immunotherapy and the responses that we were observing in, in metastatic melanoma, and uh, realized that I absolutely knew nothing about immunology, or I knew very little. Like, I could barely tell a T cell from a macrophage. I didn't know any of the lineages, and I said, well, there's a big... Uh, area that I could sort of stand to kind of dabble in. And I had no intentions of becoming an immunologist, and I am certainly not an immunologist uh, by any standards today. Um, mainly, we look at ourselves as cancer biologists that dabble in tumor immunology to try to find ways that we can augment immunotherapy through our knowledge of tumor cell signaling uh, in the tumor microenvironment. Um, so nonetheless, I'm going to start off with an immunology slide. Um, and this is just from the, it's nothing crazy, it's from the basic principles of immunology textbook. 
Um, but we know that cancer arises, uh, or likely arises, I guess this can't really be proven, but we think that cancer likely arises at many points in our natural history, but it never actually develops uh, an overt tumor. And this is primarily because our immune system, in addition to protecting ourselves from microbes or pathogens, um, can also uh, effectively eliminate cancer. There are case studies of spontaneously resolving melanomas dating back as far back as the 50s and 60s in the literature. Um, so it likely arises and may be eliminated by the immune system at many points in natural history. However, cancerous cells can reach this equilibrium, this equilibrium phase shown here, um, in which case the elimination of uh, immunogenic clones as they develop mutations or express antigens that are perhaps are not supposed to be within that tumor microenvironment, or that microenvironment rather, um, are selected for by the immune system, and therefore the tumor is still held at bay, but the tumor cells themselves are able to persist. And if left long enough at this stage, uh, also known as immune editing, the tumor can eventually escape through a variety of different mechanisms. Now, in part, this can be due to immune editing, meaning the elimination of subclones of the tumor cells themselves or the pre-tumor cells that are uh, expressing immunogenic antigens can be recognized by the T cells. But we now know that one of the primary mechanisms of escape is is to the upregulation of particular immune checkpoints. Um, and I'm going to be discussing those in just a slide, but the reason why these mechanisms exist is that anytime you have chronic inflammation at a site of, for instance, infection, is you don't want that immune system to last for too long within that microenvironment because this, these are ways that we can develop things like autoimmunity. And so these peripheral tolerance mechanisms um, are very well ingrained into the vast majority of our tissues um, and therefore exist to protect us from uh, things like autoimmunity but can be hijacked by cancer cells. Um, and so I apologize, this looks a, maybe a little bit washed out, maybe a little bit less from your perspective, but I'm going to be mainly talking today about the interaction of PD-1 and PD-L1, but of course this, this checkpoint, this immune checkpoint field is much more complicated than this, um, and I think many of us that are in the tumor immunology field that are interested in immune checkpoints often revert back to looking primarily at the ones that have, have shown uh, efficacy clinically. Um, but the really simple interaction here, for those of you that are unfamiliar with it, and, and even some of this is actually wrong, um, but the tumor cell itself can express PDL1 as well as many other tumor cell um, or uh, cell types rather within the microenvironment, like myeloid cells, um, can also express PDL1. But in this simple cartoon, you have a tumor cell that has an antigen. Maybe it's a neoantigen, maybe it's just a, an overexpressed self antigen that can engage its cognitive T cell receptor on a T cell. And so this would turn the T cell on. But for the expression of PDL1 on the tumor cell, um, which is engaged in this activation mark, PD1, on the T cell, they can actually inhibit that and turn the T cell back off. So the T cell wants to kill the tumor cell because it has a neoantigen, for instance, that's being expressed, um, cleaved up uh, in the endosome and presented on MHCs, uh, major histocompatibility complexes. Um, but the T cell is unable to do its job because PD1 is engaged by PDL1. You can inhibit this. We now have proof of this clinically that if you inhibit this either by an anti PDL1 antibody or an anti PD1 antibody, you can break this negative regulation and reactivate the T cell, possibly, or at least reactivate a new population of T cells that are coming into the microenvironment and activate the T cell against the tumor. Of course, we now know that this can get more complicated. We have things like in the, the tumor drained lymph node where CTLA4. Um, can compete with CD28 for co-stimulatory signals, things like CD80 and CD86. So CTLA4 antibodies can, um, uh, uh, can in induce T-cell priming in the tumor-draining lymph node and diversify the clones of T-cells in the body that are able to find and seek out the tumor cells and therefore eliminate them through that mechanism. We can also make this incredibly more complicated, right? So we can blow our minds with all of the numbers of different uh, uh, immune checkpoint interactors and agonists that exist within these interfaces. And so really, we now have a problem. When it was just this, it was really easy. Let's combine everything with PD-1 or PD-L1. But now we have to look at different tumor types. What are the checkpoints that are displayed within the TME, either on the tumor cells or the uh, microenvironmental immune cells? Um, is it the lymph node? Is it the tumor? Which ones are actually holding the tumor cells uh, um, or holding the immune cells in check? Um, and which ones are going to actually be in the right combinations for the right patients in the right disease? So we have a real challenge on our hands now. 
But again, I'm going to simplify this and mainly look uh, talk about today what we look at, which is PD-1 or PD-L1 express um, PDL, P, the PD-1 PD-L1 uh, interaction. And the reason is that many uh, of all those immunotherapies and all of those uh, targets that I just showed you in that last frame of the slide, uh, really those that target the PD-1 L1 axis have been proven to have the most widespread benefit. Now, perhaps the most durable responses that we've seen in cancer come from CTLA-4, but only a fraction of patients respond to anti-CTLA-4. And so it's a very important immunotherapy. We're just not going to be talking about it today in the context of this talk. Um, so we think that the PD-1, PD-L1 axis is probably the most... Uh, most important in uh, anti-tumor T-cell responses because both uh, the receptor and the ligand are um, such an immediate early process. So if you activate T-cells, for instance, in a dish, PD-1 turns on within four to eight hours. So it's an activation mark, but also an exhaustion mark. It's a negative regulation of that activation within the T-cell. PD-L1 expression, on the other hand, when you have an activated T-cell, one of the cytokines that is very commonly secreted in, the, for instance, the tumor microenvironment is interfering gamma. Literally within three to four hours of treatment of almost any tumor cell or cell type, if you treat it with interfering gamma, you see a massive upregulation of PD-L1 in the cell surface. So this is such an immediate process that we think that this is probably one of the primary gatekeepers at the tumor microenvironment of anti-tumor immunity. Um, however, we know that even with uh, the, the very profound responses that we can see with immunotherapy, there's only a fraction of patients that respond to therapy. This uh, can vary from um, some very high response rate tumors like Hodgkin's lymphoma, which has a near 70 to 80 percent response rate. Mm -hmm. To, uh, to moderate um, melanoma, somewhere around 40%, lung cancer, somewhere around 20 to 25%, um, and breast, which I'll show a little bit of data on today, um, is somewhere in the 10 to 20% range, but is actually very um, diverse response rates depending on the type of su the subtype that you're looking at in breast cancer. Unfortunately, there's a huge number. Maybe we should just treat everybody with PD-1 or, or PD-1 CTLA-4 antibodies, these immunotherapies, because if the patient has a response, they, can have, they have the potential for a cure, a very, very durable response um, in many cases. The problem is that there's huge negatives of failed treatment of these agents. It's not quite like chemotherapy, right, but there's a huge cost of therapy. So the estimated per patient cost, whether failed or successful, um, for CTLA-4 PD-1 combinations, which are the standard of care in metastatic melanoma, are about a million dollars a patient. So every patient, on average, is a million dollars in healthcare burden. Um, uh, to put that patient on treatment. There's also these very possible unpredictable autoimmunopathies. So some of them are very common, things like colitis with CTLA-4 that looks, resembles ulcerative colitis, um, usually can be, uh, uh, is, is um, susceptible to steroid treatment, so you can reverse it with steroids, or things like TNF-alpha antagonists. But um, a small subset of patients have incredibly refractory colitis from these, and we know that this is an, an autoimmune-type process. Uh, our group and others have also described um, some very rare cases of fatal autoimmunopathies like myocarditis that can result from PD-1 and, and or CTLA-4 blockade um, in patients, um, as well as um, we're now working on some, some uh, workups of, of patients that have had a severe encephalitis um, even six to eight months after receiving their first dose of anti-PD-1 therapy. Patients can have hypophysitis. They can have uh, generate type 1 diabetes. Again, all of these are very rare cases, but they're common and recurrent enough that we know that they're related to drug, drug use. So clearly, out of all of these things, we need to find ways, as with any personalized cancer initiative, uh, personalized medicine initiative, we need to find strategies that we can enhance the response rates, that we can enrich for the patients that are most likely to benefit from these uh, drugs. And so we know a lot about the phenotype of PD-1, PD-L1 responders. These have been shown in a variety of tumor types. So we know in general, none of these are perfect biomarkers, but in general, these are genomically unstable tumors. They tend to have a high mutation burden. We think that that uh, association is because they have a high neoantigen burden, although there is some skepticism on this in the field as whether this really tells the whole story. So what I mean by neoantigens is every time you have a mutation, you have the potential that that mutation is translated to a protein, is cleaved up, uh, and is presented, loaded on MHC molecules and presented to the immune microenvironment where cognate T-cell receptors on T-cells in that microenvironment can uh, identify that antigen and recognize it as non-self. 
this is possibly a probabilistic function. So maybe you have 10 mutations every 10 megabases in a tumor, but only one of these is an actual neoantigen. It'll bind the HLA, it'll get presented, but it's a really strong epitope. And so that might elicit a just as great of an immune response as another tumor that has thousands of mutations um, that are really low affinity uh, epitopes for their cognitive T cell receptors. So there's a bit of probabilistic function here. We also know that the, just on a general phenotype, that tumors have several kind of um, uh, immunohistochemistry or H&E uh, uh, phenotypes that can be observed in the micro, uh, microscope. So these cold tumors, where I've outlined the tumor here, um, you can see that, the, so this is, we're looking at CD3 stains. You can see there's almost no CD3 uh, cells or T cells anywhere near the tumor, either in the tumor or in the stroma. We have this excluded microenvironment where you have very few T cells infiltrating into the tumor, but a brisk infiltrate all around the tumor. So it's like the T cells are there and they're trying to get in. You have an immune hot um, phenotype where T cells are distributed at a high degree all throughout the tumor. Um, and then if you, if you watch these for long enough and uh, the therapy is effective, you can get to this elimination phase where essentially if you look and resect that tumor and look at it under the microscope, you have nothing but scar tissue left there and a large population of T cells uh, that are remaining that are cleaning up uh, uh, the, the, any residual tumor cells that are there. So, so really in these highly immune infiltrated tumors, namely the excluded tumors, these tend to be the ones that respond most commonly to PD-1 therapy, and they progress to sort of having a hot microenvironment. So if you look in paired biopsies, you see T cells from around the tumor entering the tumor after a response to immunotherapy and eventually going to this stage. So we know we don't really know a lot of characterization of this actual immune infiltration. So we know that CD8 cells are very important here. These are the effector cells that are cytotoxic, that are killing the tumor cells. We know that CD4 T cells can also be very important. You can't have sustained CD8 functionality unless you have uh, T helper cells in the microenvironment as well. And we typically think of these as Th1 uh, phenotypes. And you can basically have everything else. So if if you look at a tumor that is having an immune rea a, a, a response, an immune-mediated response to immunotherapy, you might see more CD8 cells, but you also see more CD4 cells. You also see more uh, regulatory T cells. You kind of see an influx, a complete influx of the entire repertoire of, of immune cells within that tumor. Um, but but most, most often, the patients that respond have these T cells in the invasive margin or the immune-excluded environment. You can also look at gene signatures, so markers of the interfering gamma response. This is a, an incredibly important uh, in T cell recognition. So um, T cells, and particularly CD4 T cells, will secrete interfering gamma when they uh, are in the appropriate uh, anti-tumor milieu, um, and that activates PDL1 expression within that, that space. And so these tend to be the tumors which are most responsive to PD-1, PD-L1 therapy because you know that you have that sort of negative feedback or negative regulation within the microenvironment. You could also look at inflammatory cytokines, things that recruit T cells to the microenvironment like CXCR3 ligands. Um, all of these things, though, in fact, are, in fact, markers of interfering gamma response. And even though we look at PDL1 as being the target for PD1, PDL1 therapy, really here PDL1 is just a dynamic marker that you have T cell activation within the tumor, and in fact is a marker of interfering gamma response. So our lab and many others are interested in strategies for enhancing uh, the PD1 or PDL1 response. So we want to take immune hot or excluded microenvironments, and we want to try to deepen or, uh, the response rates or enhance response rates. And there are many different ways to do this. So we can agonize T cells. So there's things like 4-1-BB or OX40 ligands that can bind and stimulate the, uh, the proliferation of naive T cells. Um, so we can activate them in that way. We can remove additional uh, or alternative checkpoints. A great example of this is CTLA-4, PD-1 combinations that are approved in melanoma. Um, and we can also target regulatory phenotypes like myeloid-derived suppressor cells and regulatory T cells. For the other tumors, those ones that we call an immune cold, or some groups have described them as the immune desert phenotype, I think that's a bit dramatic. Um, but... Uh, we can certainly, really what we want to do here is just make these patients respond in some way. So we want to make those tumors look more like the PD-1 responsive patients. So if you can employ a single agent therapy that creates an immune cold, takes an immune cold microenvironment to an immune excluded microenvironment, you have a very good chance now of being able to add PD-1 therapy on top in that patient and possibly getting a response in that patient. So the strategies here are to prime T cells, to recruit T cells. Uh, and one thing that our laboratory is really interested in is enhancing antigen presentation. 
So can immunotherapy work in a generally immune-suppressed uh, or immune-excluded uh, tumor like breast cancer? So uh, breast cancer has a number of different subtypes. There's ER-positive or luminal breast cancers. These tend to be more immunologically cold. The triple negative and HER2-positive breast cancers tend to have this immune-excluded environment. So they have T cells there, but they tend to be in the parenchyma of the tumor rather than in the tumor themselves. And so these are two trials, and we're going to focus primarily on triple negative breast cancer. So these were all PDL1 positive triple negative breast cancers. So they were stained immunohistochemistry wise for PDL1, and only those patients with some degree of PDL1 positivity in the tumor were enrolled in the trial. But you can clearly see that these patients are having um, uh, substantial durable responses to a single agent PD1 therapy, but it is in fact a min- minority of patients. So the overall response rate is somewhere around 20% in this population. Now, another trial employing the PDL1 agent of Velumab, the Javelin trial, this was not PDL1 selected, but uh, triple negative breast cancer again nonetheless in about 46 patients. And we can see the same evidence, not complete responses, but partial responses that last quite a long time in these patients. Again, an overall response rate of somewhere around 20%. We also have this group of patients as well that are getting some kind of long-term clinical benefit or long-term stable disease. So clearly we have some kind of signal here that at least in triple negative breast cancer um, that we can actually uh, get uh, baseline responses to immunotherapy. This is another trial uh, just sort of showing this ad nauseum. Again, it's PD-L1. Uh, this is a tezolizumab, a Genentech drug. They're stratifying patients here by PD-L1 status, either in the immune cells um, uh, or uh, those that lack PD-L1 uh, expression in the immune cells within the microenvironment. And you can see that the survival curves don't really look different between these groups, but clearly the long-term survivors seem to be those that had PD-L1 expression on immune cells within the microenvironment. But again, we're looking at somewhere about a 20% long-term response rate within these patients. The activity uh, is somewhat more tenuous in ER positive, so early reports. It's only been tried once or twice because people didn't predict ER positive breast cancer to be very responsive, but it's somewhere really in the order of 5 to 8%. But nonetheless, this does suggest the possibility for combinations to enhance that response rate, particularly in the case of endocrine resistance, where we really don't have any therapies for those patients um, that might no longer be reliant upon the ER pathway. Uh, And then finally, HER2-positive disease has a lot of correlative signal. They have um, a substantial number of tumors that seem to have all the the makings of a PD-1-responsive tumor, uh, but we really haven't seen substantial clinical data coming out yet to support or refute that hypothesis. So our laboratory, uh, and, and during my postdoctoral work, was very interested in the paradigm of neoadjuvant chemotherapy and triple negative breast cancer. So neoadjuvant chemotherapy is used pre-surgically to try to, um, to uh, uh, reduce the tumor bulk or the tumor burden in the patient, make them a, a candidate for a more conserving breast surgery, um, as well as to eliminate, deliver systemic therapy to eliminate any micrometastases. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy is now the standard of care in the majority of triple negative breast cancers. Um, It has clear prognostic implications, so it can identify the bad tumors. Because if a patient has a complete complete response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy, meaning they get six months of chemotherapy, they go to surgery, and there's no tumor cells within that that tumor microenvironment, they have a very, very good outcome, and that's shown here. Um, The blue line here is about 98% in this particular study, five years out from surgery, no recurrence. Um, However, if you look at the patients that have residual disease, these are the patients that recur, and they typically recur several years after uh, after surgery. So we can employ neoadjuvant chemotherapy and look at that residual disease and really take the patients that we really want to treat further and figure out how to treat them better. Um, This is just another... um, Another example of this where they've taken these patients, so only those patients with the residual disease and triple negative breast cancer, and stratified them based on key 67 in that residual disease. So taken the high key 67 ones after chemotherapy and the low and stratified them, and you can see the ones that even though they have tumor, but they have low key 67, they actually do better. And the patients that have a high key 67 do worse even though they're all no evidence of disease after surgery. So all of what we can observe clinically has been taken out of the patient. This suggests that there's molecular information encoded in that residual disease that might be able to guide further uh, treatment stratifications. So in the same setting now, we're going to bring back in a little bit of immunology or tumor immunology, is that for many years it's been known that patients that have a large degree of tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes 
in the tumor are, tend to be ones that are uh, prognostically perform much better. There's actually patients, there's a, a pa paper in the 1950s by Black et al. that showed uh, that just by looking at simple H&E before we could use immunistic chemistry and had antibodies, um, that just these small, dense lymphocytic uh, infiltrates within the tumor were associated with how good the patient would do, even on chemotherapies um, or just in a general prognostic uh, fashion. And so this is now being introduced by uh, uh, colleagues at Jules Bourdais and in Australia as far as a, a, bio, um, uh, a working group for the identification of TILs and breast cancer as a biomarker. Um, but we now know that these lymphocytic infiltrates have a number of different prognostic and predictive capabilities. So they can predict a favorable pa patient prognosis. We've known that for decades. But they can also predict complete response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So if a patient's diagnosed, they have a large number of uh, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in their tumor. Those patients tend to be the ones that respond completely to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Furthermore, in the patients that have that residual disease, if they have a large amount of tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in the residual disease after chemotherapy, those patients, again, like He67, do much better after, uh, after surgery. And these uh, factors together suggest that immune evasion or recognition is, in fact, coupled with the PDL1 response rates in triple negative breast cancer, is, in fact, an important factor in patient outcome. And so we're going to try to build on this pre uh, premise. So again, if we're looking at chemotherapy as being the standard of care for, for triple negative breast cancer, why would chemotherapy, why would there be this sort of interaction with the immune system and chemotherapy? We've known for uh, some, some, while, uh, some time, and there's multiple different mechanisms that I think play into this, that chemotherapy can induce immunogenic cell death. So it can cause cells... We typically think of this as apoptosis, but in many cases, it's actually not apoptosis that we see from chemotherapy activity. What you actually have is necrosis of the tumor cells or dying of the tumor cells that generates immunogenic cell death. It releases antigen. Rather than imploding, the tumor cells explode. They release antigens that drain to the tumor-draining lymph node that are taken in by phagocytic cells like dendritic cells and then are displayed to T cells. Those T cells also receive signal from the immune microenvironment like CXCL9, 10, and 11, which are CXCR3 ligands, that bind to the T cells and give the T cells the license to leave the lymph node and search out that site of inflammation. So this is how this entire system is built on a very basic level. Um, and so chemotherapy, as well as having other more specific mechanisms, including the release of double-stranded RNA from within the cell that can bind TLRs in the tumor microenvironment, all of these things have the potential to potentiate anti-tumor immunity after chemotherapy. And so uh, Melissa Nixon, a postdoctoral fellow in my lab, took a series of uh, uh, pre- and post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy patients. So these are all one uh, cases where you have the diagnostic biopsy, the patient received chemotherapy, and then went on to uh, have residual disease, um, had that residual disease resected, and we have that resection specimen as well as follow-up, long-term follow-up from the patients. And so what she did is she worked with uh, Roberto Salgado at Jules Bourdais in Belgium, um, who is sort of the godfather right now of TILS analysis, um, and he scored them in a blinded fashion, so he looked at um, how he would score the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in each of these. And if we looked at the uh, post-neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy uh, TILs, and we group them into those that have low tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, intermediate or high, you can see that there's a st statistically significant association with how well those patients do after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, if we also look at overall survival, we can see that those patients do, in fact, have a long-term benefit. So it's not the amount of time that it takes them to recur, but it's actually related to patient, uh, overall patient prognosis. So what Melissa did was she took these uh, formalin-fixed biopsy specimens and residual disease specimens, and we put them on a nanostring panel. Nanostring, if you're unfamiliar with the technology, is a gene expression analysis that works very well in formalin-fixed tissue because it does not use enzymatic amplification. So you have no, uh, you don't have to deal with the worrisome factors of cross-linking. You still have to deal with the degradation. Um, but in fact, it only requires several hundred nucleotides of intact sequence to quantify RNAs. However, it's limited in the fact that we have to choose our panel. So it's about a 770-gene panel that's primarily related to uh, uh, immunologic genes. And so what she did is she classified these bioinformatically uh, to different uh, signatures, these 770 genes. And we're looking at in the heat map organized by molecular subtype of breast cancer is the change 
in that signature pre to post. So if it's red, it went up in that patient for that particular signature. And if it's blue, it went down. If it's white, there was no change. And you can see that there's a, this small group of patients, um, mostly confined to the basal-like and HER2 enriched group, where chemotherapy actually enriched T-cell-derived gene expression signatures. But this is certainly not universal, and there's a large number of patients, particularly within the basal-like, in which these T-cell signatures went down. And we can actually... Uh, if we look at the T-cell signatures or the overall signatures and whether you can see many of them correlate with one another, again, you know, if you have an immunologic uh, uh, activation within a tumor, we rarely see one subtype going into the tumor, one uh, population of cells. So, so she, she correlated these or, or, or grouped these by whether or not they had a general increase uh, or decrease with chemotherapy. And so the patients that had an increase after neoadjuvant chemotherapy did much, much better than those patients that actually had sort of a negative immunologic effect with neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Um, and this was actually better than simply looking at that post-treatment TILS analysis. We can also make some judgments on, okay, are we just recruiting general cells? Or are these actually... Um, are we actually getting T-cell mediated in, uh, immunity that might be playing into this? And one of the ways that we can kind of get at that is looking at T-cell receptor clonality. So each time a T-cell receptor recognizes its antigen, it will become activated, and then when it uh, and, and will proliferate in that tumor-draining lymph node, it can further activate and induce cytotoxicity as well as proliferate further within the tumor microenvironment. So what we did is we measured using next-generation sequencing the number of times that the same T-cell receptor is present within the tumor microenvironment. So T-cell receptor uh, uh, is often, T-cell receptor sequencing is often used to try to identify neoantigen to T-cell receptor pairs. Um, in this case, we're only looking at one of the pairs, so the beta uh, TCR. So we actually, we don't know what the antigen is. We're just making an assumption by the fact that we have multiple clones or multiple copies or reads of this particular TCL, uh, TCR beta sequence. And clonality is a net measurement of how common those sequences are detected in the same sample. And you can see that that clonality is uh, uh, positively correlated with whether or not the patient had more T cells. So not only are they bringing in more T cells, but those T cells are also appear to be clonally expanding either in the periphery or in the tumor microenvironment itself. And then finally, we were trying to get at the question of, well, what's bringing the T cells into the tumor after neoadjuvant chemotherapy? And one thing that Melissa noted was that these uh, CXCR3 uh, ligands, as well as CCL5, which is another T cell chemokine, were significantly correlated to that change in the T cell signature. So these, again, these ligands are produced after following inflammation. Um, particularly innate immune inflammation within cells that are then uh, drained into the lymph node or go into the tumor-draining lymph node or the site of inflammation lymph node, bind to CXCR3 and license T cells to, to leave and seek out that site of inflammation. And so we see the gene expression values for these chemokines um, correlate uh, very strongly in a positive direction with the, uh, with the change in these, uh, the, these T cell so uh, scores as well as just quantifying tumor infiltrating lymphocytes within the tumor. So, this, uh, so really, there's a number of questions. This is something we have a lot of interest in now. Um, are there breast cancer subtype or alteration-specific effects that might modulate this effect of chemotherapy on recruiting T cells? What is responsible for that effect? And does this correspond to patient subpopulations who may benefit from a combination of chemotherapy with immunotherapy? So we actually think that those patients that recruit more T cells to the microenvironment, even though those are the patients that do a little bit better, might actually be the patients that we would want to deliver systemic immunotherapy to after, after chemotherapy. And so trying to get at this, one of the um, uh, very uh, uh, common mutations in breast cancer, particularly triple negative and HER2-positive breast cancer, uh, are P53 mutations. And P53 is a big story, big area of research, rather. Um, you can have loss of function. You can have... Um, uh, what, what uh, Gordon Mills would call neomorphs, right? So gain of function slash loss of function. And, it, and it's a very difficult uh, area of biology to get into. But if we simply classify P53 mutations in uh, the TCGA breast cancer cohort, we can see that those P53 mutant tumors have substantially more of these different chemokines. So um, there's been a, several papers uh, that have uh, suggested that modulation of P53 function can actually induce states of inflammation, particularly following um, DNA-damaging uh, chemotherapy. And so this was kind of what led us to look at this. And so um, in each of these cases, CXCL9 and 10, as well as CCL5 were all upregulated in the P53 mutant patients within TCGA. 
So is this complete loss of p53, or is it mutant or neomorph p53 function that might be responsible here? So this is an analysis that Melissa also did where she looked at the protein data for p53 and the mRNA data, and you can see that there's no real change in the mRNA of p53 and the p53 mutant versus wild-type patients. However, the, the mutated patients have actually more um, P53 protein. And this has been known for a while. So P53 is, is often mutated in, in triple negative or basal-like breast cancer, and P53 immunohistochemistry used to be a marker to actually identify basal-like or triple negative breast cancer. Because when that protein is mutated, if it's not completely eliminated, so we have, rarely have copy loss of, of or um, hemozyga, uh, uh, homozygous loss of P53 at the genomic level, we re re usually have loss of heterozygosity and mutation. The, these mutations actually induce stability of the P53 protein itself, which is where we think that this uh, difference in the protein expression is coming from. So if we then go back to the TCGA data again, just trying to draw some more correlative data from the bioinformatic analysis here, we can correlate across patients with CXCL9 with T-cell signatures. So genes like CD8A, which can also be expressed in dendritic cells, but is primarily a marker of T-cells uh, within the microenvironment. So we see good correlations there, um, uh, perhaps not so good correlations, but still statistically significant in CXCL10, and again, a very good correlation with CCL5. Um, we can also uh, look at uh, leverage uh, large databases of genetically engineered mouse models. So there was a, a, a paper in uh, uh, genome biology that was published out of Charles Peru's lab, uh, UNC, in uh, I believe 2007 or 8, um, where they did microarray on about 200 different genetically engineered mouse models of cancer. And you know what the alterations are within each one of these uh, tumors, or at least what the driving alterations are. And so we can separate those out by ones that have a P53 alteration as part of the genetic model and ones that don't. So it's a very crude sort of separation. But again, if you look at the P53 altered models, you can see that, again, these tumors express more CXCL9 and CXCL10. And if you use, again, sort of this crude measurement of T-cell infiltrate into these models, we again see a positive correlation of CXCL9 with CDA uh, mRNA across these 200 genetically engineered mouse models. So in order to try to study this in the laboratory, uh, Melissa did um, uh, use CRISPR to target P53 uh, within the relevant DNA binding domain. Um, and then she treated those cells with either docetaxel or doxorubicin, finding that the DNA damaging agent, doxorubicin, massively upregulated CCL5 and CXCL9 in response to chemotherapy um, and w uh, had a very profound effect on CXCL10, suggesting that something with P53 loss of function or difference function um, was changing the response to DNA damaging agents as far as innate inflammation in the cells. Um, and then uh, P21, which is a canonical P53 target, um, is showed here just as proof that the P53 uh, cell lines have lost their canonical function. So these, these cells that we've hit with CRISPR. So this leaves a number of questions, again, is uh, are there other tumor intrinsic pathways or molecular alterations that might be able to suppress uh, anti-tumor immunity? Um, we're also going back and trying to model these P53 lines within uh, a mouse model. Um, we're doing things like trying to block CXCR3 to see if that can uh, uh, abrogate the trafficking induced by, chem uh, by chemotherapy of T cells back into the tumor microenvironment. But really wanted to get it, are there other tumor intrinsic pathways that can suppress anti-tumor immunity? And I'll probably have to fly through this story because I tend to talk a lot, explain way too much, uh, or else put way too many uh, slides within my presentation. Um, Todd will tell you that I do happen to talk a lot. So this was a paper, uh, Cancer Discovery, in 2014 that we published whenever I was still a postdoc in Carlos's lab. Again, looking at post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy and uh, looking at the alterations that are present within that residual disease and separating the mutations and alterations into pathways. So five different pathways here. Working with collaborators at Peter McCallum Cancer Center in Australia, um, what we did was we took all of these residual disease specimens as well as the pretreatment biopsies, and we took whether or not the tumor was, had a genomic alteration in one of those five pathways, and we correlated it to whether or not there were TILs in that same tumor. And there was no association with mutations or alterations in any of these pathways uh, shown here with TILs in the pretreatment biopsy. However, what we did find was that alterations within the RASMAP kinase pathway were associated with suppression of TILs within the tumor microenvironment in the post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, uh, microenvironment. 
So we are also able to replicate this in the TCGA data. Again, these are non-canonical uh, alterations within the RASMAP kinase pathway, things like um, uh, loss of function mutations in NF1, um, amplifications and gains in, in BRAF and KRAS family members. We'd also have found that an activation signature, a transcriptional signature of the MAP kinase pathway was associated in the same patients with really poor outcome. We never really had a good hypothesis for that other than the MAP kinase pathway is bad, and so if it's activated in these patients, they do worse. Um, but what we ended up finding was that the TILS uh, within the patient sample was directly correlated to an activation signature of the MAP kinase pathway uh, in an inverse direction. And again, going back to our genetically engineered mouse model data set, we saw the same functionality, so or the same association, that the more activation of the RASMAP kinase pathway you had, at least at the transcriptional level, the less uh, markers of, of tumor inflammation you had within the tumor microenvironment, or T cells. And then finally, going back to the TCGA and scoring meticulously all 206 basal-like uh, breast cancer specimens f by the H&E for TILS, we were again able to show an inverse correlation between that transcriptional signature by RNA-seq within the basal-like tumors with uh, um, uh, TILS. Um, we had microarray data coming out of the lab trying to understand what this pathway was doing uh, as far as suppression of anti-tumor immunity. And one of the things that I found, again, with my poor appreciation of tumor immunology at that point, which is about 2013 or 2014, was that one of the things we were seeing was when we inactivated the MAP kinase pathway with an inhibitor, we were seeing upregulation of MHC class 2. So MHC class 2 is usually on your professional antigen-presenting cells. There's data to suggest that it is, in fact, on tumor cells themselves, but the functionality there isn't really known. Typically, tumor cells are not thought as um, being presenters of class II restricted antigens. And so working with the RIM lab at uh, Yale, um, we were able to do uh, uh, quantitative immunofluorescence, demonstrating that within our breast cancer samples, they were actually, there was a series of tumors that were expressing class II specifically on the tumor, whereas here we're showing, again, I apologize for the washed out signal here, all the class II expression is in the, the, the tumor stroma rather than tumor cells themselves. And again, we could show that the class II expression specifically on the tumor cells was associated inversely with this MEK transcriptional signature. And actually, we saw a very similar functionality with class I by immunohistochemistry. Uh, Shireen Loy's lab was working with this on a molecular level, showing that if we treated breast cancer cell lines with a MEK inhibitor for several days to prime them and then hit them with interferon gamma, we saw enhanced expression of class I and class II as well as pdl one expression. So MEK inhibitors were actually sensitizing the cells to interferon gamma induction. So we developed this idea that if we have interferon gamma secretion from the anti-tumor milieu, we are activating MHC and pdl one expression. Um, we would inactivate that pathway by, uh, by uh, activation of the RASMAP kinase pathway so it can suppress that interferon gamma effect. However, these two effects of, of interferon gamma that we are interested in, pd one expression and MHC2 and 1 expression, have opposing effects on the microenvironment. They can enhance antigen presentation, promoting anti-tumor immunity, but they can also support immune evasion. So if we block both of these pathways, the RASMAP kinase pathway, as well as block the negative regulation arm of this, we should see synergy or additivity. And so we were able to show this uh, in several different breast cancer models. This is AT3-OVA, so it expresses ovalbumin antigen, where we got several complete responses uh, to this combination. And this is in a model with T cells, and we can show that this has immune, uh, uh, at least T cell-mediated activity, because we can do the same model in a RAG-deficient mouse um, and abrogate that effect. Uh, we can also look at uh, a, a relatively luminal-like model, the mmtv new. We can do it uh, and see uh, profound responses to the combination, but also some single-agent activity of PD-L1 um, using um, uh, collaborating with our uh, imaging science center. We can do immunopet, so we take a CD8 antibody and we put on a pet tracer and we inject that into the mice, and so we can visualize a CD8 signal shown here. You can see that immune-excluded uh, signal around the tumor. And then we treat with this combination of MEK inhibitor plus PDL1, and we now see that signal goes into the tumor as locally uh, in the cortex of the tumor. And then we can finally do the genetic experiment and overactivate the MAP kinase pathway <coughs> the tumor cell line and then inject them orthotopically. And you can see any of the single agent efficacy that we can see with anti PDL1 alone is abrogated, but we can recover some of that with uh, the <coughs> Uh, 
this is just some gene expression analysis showing that we also, uh, uh, by MEK activation, can suppress MHG1 and MHG2 expression in the tumor microenvironment. Um, and then simultaneously, when we're coming out with these data, we're observing in ASCO in 2016 that the, there were some empiric trials that were coming out of Genentech showing that in microsatellite stable colorectal cancer, where P1 therapy uh, is essentially has no efficacy whatsoever, so 0% responses in the phase 1 trials, that they were now seeing responses in microsatellite stable metastatic colorectal cancer. And in that presentation, they happened to be looking for whatever reason, I and mean, we now know because they had a project that was very similar to ours going on in Genentech, looking at MHC1, CDA, PDL1, seeing all of those same effects with the inhibitor codependent, the mechanism codependent. So we actually now have validation in the clinic that this combination is doing the same things that we were seeing within our model. And so pursuant to this, we're working with uh, investigators to the TDCRC in metastatic triple negative breast cancer, these patients will be randomized to several arms, so an Evelumab or PDL1 inhibitor alone arm, or a PDL1 plus a MEK inhibitor arm, as well as several different immunologically active agents that I will discuss, basically T cell agonist uh, arms. This is our arm, and so for all of these arms, what I think is really cool about these trials are that we're collecting tumor biopsies at baseline, and after the adjuvant therapy, so after a lead-in of the adjuvant therapy, so again, getting to this idea, can we convert the tumor microenvironment to what we expect for a PDL responder, and then does that correlate with the ultimate outcome in those patients? We've also uh, got this trial funded in the cancer <coughs> breast cancer, we stand up to cancer in Genentech. Um, and so these are endocrine refractors, these are positive breast cancers, specifically the P53 mutant breast cancer uh, of that population, which are typically your luminal B, and then they have more RASMAC kinase activation. These tumors are going to be treated again with a mechanism, in this case, called a method for two weeks, like the first trial, with flanking tumor biopsies on both sides, and then we'll have tepalizumab added uh, on the back end. Uh, and uh, uh, also in collaboration with our uh, Imaging Science Center, we're doing PDL1 and UNOPAT to try to observe whether or not we can use PDL1 upregulation as an early response marker, uh, as a biomarker of that interfering gamma activation of the tumor microenvironment, um, flanking that lead in therapy. So if we treat with the mechanism, we see PDL1 by PET imaging go up within those tumors. Uh, I don't think I'm actually going to have time because I'm already running behind. Uh, maybe a few minutes, I'll try to go through this quickly. We now have, we're now sort of on this trail of antigen presentation. So therapies that either upregulate <coughs> response or more specifically enhance antigen presentation by tumor cells, uh, in our hands appear to be very efficacious in preclinical models. So we're trying to find other ways to enhance antigen presentation within the tumor microenvironment. <coughs> so epigenetic inhibitors are one uh, tumor type, or I'm sorry, one uh, treatment type that has been shown in several ways to, uh, um, to enhance response rates to immunotherapy. This was shown initially in Steve Balin's group as part of the state of the cancer epigenetics dream team, where they had patients that have epigenetic therapy have no responses to those therapies. But in four out of five patients that went on to receive uh, uh, immunotherapy afterwards, four out of five of those patients, I believe they were lung cancer patients, all had responses. So it's way higher than we would, uh, much higher, excuse me, than we would predict uh, in a typical lung cancer population. Um, and so, uh, as it turns out, um, uh, we really wanted to know whether MHCs themselves were actually epigenetically silenced in breast cancer. And so now a lot. Uh, who uh, is now back in China, was a postdoc in my lab for two years, just had this paper published in Nature Communications, looking at treatment with the next generation DNA methyltransferase inhibitor from Aztecs called Vladisidine. Uh, so she treated uh, these cell lines for uh, several days with this uh, DNA methyltransferase inhibitor uh, and then treated them with interfering gamma. And what she saw was that in multiple cases, both class one and class two expression uh, were enhanced in response to interfering gamma on tumor cells. Um, however, there was no change whatsoever in PDL1 expression within, uh, within the cells. And so the idea was that uh, looking at TCGA data, we were seeing that the MHC molecules were actually inversely correlated with the amount of um, uh, 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 CPG island promoter methylation in front of the MHCs. So we we're thinking that what we're actually doing is that, that MHCs can be epigenetically suppressed within breast cancer and that these agents can actually reactivate uh, antigen presentation within the tumor cells. 
Um, so again, using a Unipet, we were able to test this hypothesis in a small subgroup of mice. So we treated the mice with guaxitabine for seven days, I think it's three days on, four days off, with a peritoneal injection. And again, seeing that we were seeing that the tumors light up with this anti-CD8 Unipet uh, within the treated mice. In patient tumors, um, these are data from Cynthia Zana, who was part of that dream team uh, at Johns Hopkins, where they had done um, paired biopsies in breast cancer patients treated with an HDAC inhibitor plus a DNA methyltransferase inhibitor. We also see upregulation of MHD1 and in some cases MHD2 um, uh, uh, genes, the expression of these genes by microarray. Uh, and then finally, not, what not did was methylation specific PCR um, in uh, tumor cells. Uh, showing that we can actually, at several sites, enhance um, the unmethylated form or demethylate the promoters uh, of the mouse MHD promoters. Um, finally, doing some work with uh, trying to understand how this was um, this was activating both the interferon responsiveness of MHD1 and MHD2, as well as the baseline expression of the antigen presentation in the tumor cell. She did this, uh, I thought it was a pretty nice experiment, where what she did was she was observing that with interferon gamma, um, you know, so one of the things that DNA methyltransferase inhibitors can do is they can activate endogenous retrovirus sequences within the tumor cells. So these are sort of um, archaically integrated retroviral sequences that are normally epigenetically suppressed. Release, um, release of that can activate these transcripts, which, which can activate pattern recognition receptors within these tumor cells themselves and increase innate inflammation. And they can activate the anti pathway. So because she had seen enhanced um, uh, repressed promoter methylation with epigenetic inhibitors for the MHC1 promoters, she did this experiment where she treated the cells interfering gamma, you see upregulation of MHC1. If she did the same experiment and she used an NF-kappa-B inhibitor, she only partially blocks this effect. So what this suggests is that these BRB sequences might actually be only partially responsive for the enhanced MHC upregulation within the tumor cells. And uh, again, however, if she hits them with interfering gamma, um, but in the context of uh, a DNA level transferase inhibitor, um, she can actually completely block, uh, while we get more MHG1 expression with the DNA level transferase inhibitor, she can completely block the interfering gamma induction uh, by that mechanism. So this appears to suggest that the DNA, uh, I'm sorry, just tumor data, we also get combinatorial uh, effects in several different tumor models. Um, shown here and here, um, but really just getting to sort of the final idea is that uh, DNA methyltransferase inhibitors through this known mechanism can upregulate BRBs, which activate the NF-B pathway that primes tumor cells for interfering gamma responsiveness. However, they also have a direct effect that was not previously disclosed or, or identified, which is they can actually directly demethylate the MHD1 promoter. We actually think that both of these mechanisms may be important. Uh, in the potential efficacy of these agents, uh, at least in breast cancer, possibly other diseases, um, for combinations with immunotherapy. So we have lots of different ways that we can try to combine uh, small molecule inhib inhibitors, radiotherapy, um, uh, other immunotherapies, um, chemotherapy, um, hormone therapy with uh, uh, immunotherapy. It's possible that many of these things work, but we have a limited number of patients we have a limited number of research dollars in order to test these combinations. <coughs> how empiric do we make this? How uh, strong of a rationale do we need? And really, how much mechanism? And so um, we sort of focus on this aspect of antigen presentation within the microenvironment. Um, but unfortunately, there's a large number of, of trials that are going on there, really, without lack of preclinical, with a complete lack of preclinical evidence. There's a clinical trial that's actually going on right now where they're employing JAK1 inhibitors in combination with PDL1. Why? I have no idea. The, re the, the reason that I'm so concerned about this is that two years ago, there was a New England Journal of Medicine paper from Tony Vivas' lab at UCLA. And they had patients that responded to a PD1 inhibitor, massive response, and then, and then, and then regressed. Uh, or, I'm sorry, relapsed. And they, they looked at the genetics of that relapsed tumor. And in two out of seven patients that they looked at, they have loss of JAK1, which is part of that interfering gamma response, have homozygous loss of the JAK1 uh, region in the DNA when they progress. And if they replaced JAK1 activity in those tumor cells, they became re-responsive to the interfering gamma pathway. So we're actually inducing the mechanism of resistance with a small molecule inhibitor, 
inpatients and doing trials. And I, I truly, you know, talking to the drug companies, cannot get a very good reason as to why they're doing this combination of patients. Uh, and so, you know, I think we do need to understand some mechanism. We might not have to have all of the mechanism worked out, but at least a proof of concept, uh, a preclinical models that these drugs are going to be uh, efficacious in the right tumor, in the right patient, uh, in the right disease setting. So uh, these are our conclusions to understanding the heterogeneity among breast cancer subtypes. Um, to chemotherapy-mediated immune responses, we think is a high-yield field that may help to design combinatorial trials with immunotherapy and chemotherapy of breast cancer. Um, suppression of antigen presentation pathways, um, we believe is a tumor uh, strategy to promote immune ignorance. Um, and there's a number of different uh, clinical uh, trials that are in progress right now. Um, that uh, we're either collaborating on or testing some of these hypotheses. Uh, the ISPY2 trial and a passion trial for combinations of chemotherapy. Um, our trials, ACORN and TDCRC047 for mechanovision. Uh, and then finally, uh, an epigenetic mo modulation study, which we're now seeking funding for with, uh, with ASTEX for uh, triple negative renal breast cancer. So, with that, uh, uh, we uh, work with a lot of different people and uh, the, these people have been uh, absolutely integral in getting these projects off the ground. Um, as I said, you know, we're cancer biologists that are getting into tumor immunology. As you can imagine, that's a very difficult field at the present, uh, very uh, convoluted and, and, and uh, um, uh, congested field. And so having these key collaborators um, to enhance the translation uh, impact of our work uh, is, is very critical. Uh, specifically, my old mentor, Carl Sartiaga, uh, Shereen Roy and Peter McCallum in Australia, uh, Charles Manning, who's just an outstanding guy and uh, uh, imaging scientist, uh, nuclear imaging, uh, Rebecca Cook, who is our mouse model expert, uh, Ingrid Meyer, who's our uh, breast oncologist, and then we're collaborating on this C trial with uh, Hope Bruno. And then my laboratory, which seems uh, to change so many times that nobody's in the same picture twice. Uh, but uh, I knew I'd made it as a young investigator when my lab came dressed like me for Halloween. Uh, so we all wear uh, you know, jeans and cowboy boots and a, uh, a sports coat or a blazer, sunglasses, and a puka shell necklace. Uh, it took me like 10 minutes to figure out why they were all wearing sunglasses in the lab. But. Uh, so we get lots of different funding from, from many different you know, foundations and mechanisms. Um, it, it's really important for us as young investigators, um, so we really want to acknowledge those, those sources. So, thank you. Any questions? Yes. So, you, you showed some data on. Um, Perturbations in the neck. Um, how do you know that affects the, the activity of the tills? Um, do you have a readout on those? Or are the tills in patients who have great responses, immune responses, are they also the problem? Like, you know, uh, so this is this is what we think is going on. So you know, we have a little bit of a mechanism of what the rationalkinase pathway activation can do to results in some. It's really hard to say that. The absolute expression of NHG1 or NHG2 is a rate limiting step. So, does low to high expression of class 1, for instance, actually enhance presentation of these cells and increase the rate of, of T cell expansion? We do know that class 1 and class 2 is part of that interfering gamma response, and most cells will at least express class 1 um, endogenously. So, there's got to be a reason why nature has created that system to actually upregulate it. It does have to do something. What we also know is from Ira Mellon's lab at Genentech, who was shortly after us with a much bigger impact, was that there's a, a MAC inhibitor effect on T cells themselves. So the MAC inhibitor will completely block T cell proliferation in a dish. If you activate them with CD3, CD28, they will proliferate. If you put a MAC inhibitor in there, there will be zero proliferation. Uh, and what he showed was that uh, from the T cell side, is that in the tumor microenvironment itself, what mechanovision actually does is it takes uh, already activated T cells 
and it keeps them from dying or from apoptosis due to chronic antigen exposure. So it actually prolongs the survival of the T cells you really care about, which are the antigen experienced ones in the tumor microenvironment. But that's completely his work that we haven't done any, you know, any of those studies anymore. Yes. When you're dealing with methotransferases, don't you frequently, you frequently induce apoptosis? So is there a... Oh, we see mostly cytostatic uh, effects. So if we use old school ones, like 5 days of cytidine, we see a lot more, uh, I don't know if that would call it apoptosis, but cell death. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we kind of think that's because those are, they're not dirty drugs, they just, they do more than just inhibit uh, DNA methylation. They can also incorporate into DNA and, and induce DNA damage in that way. So um, that actually may be why that they were so affected by myeloid diseases, things like NDS. But, um, but the guadocytamine that we use, which is this sort of next generation one, has much less of those overt cytotoxic effects and is much more specific to CBG methylation. Um, and it seems to not have a massive amount of time for the cell death phenotype. It's mostly cytostatic. Those things that you mentioned in the ACL, which are being used in the neurology for the same reason. Yeah. Uh, and they're seeing on those. Yeah, so we just started using the EZH2 inhibitors mainly because um, class 2 expression by uh, some investigators has been shown to. Uh, be suppressed in tumor cells through primarily uh, an EZH2-mediated pathway. Um, and we also have some other ideas on that pathway. We haven't probably done enough to say that we're, we're seeing a lot of cell death. We're using the GSK compound, um, but we're probably not far enough into the project to say anything to tell you, uh, about what we're seeing in at least breast cancer cell lines with EZH2 inhibitors. But you know, I certainly think that combining different epigenetic inhibitors at first glance, it seems like, well, why would you just overlap the same mechanism of action? But when you really get down to it, they have very different different effects on, you know, on chromatin structure and the genes that they can express or re-express. Uh, and so uh, we do have some interest there, but uh, I just can't remark on it intelligently. Any questions? Thank you. Thank you, guys.